Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to have an opportunity to be together and uh, uh, grateful for um, the community here and that we get a chance to really be together. I would, I would say, you know, keep praying for the um, pastoral nominating committee. Uh, be, you know, just sort of immersing them in prayer because there's a lot going on there, um, a lot of good stuff. And um, we've got a great team, actually, that's working on this together. And so I uh, just would invite you to be mindful of that as well. Um, today, we're looking at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35, and we're looking at the idea of, um, of uh, God actually calling us to discipleship. And what does that mean? How do we really engage in discipleship in a way that helps us to grow and be the people that God's created us to be? So I'm going to actually get us into this, and we'll, uh, we'll start uh, looking at that and thinking about it. I'm going to actually read um, verses 25 through uh, 35, sort of out the gate, so we get an overview of what's going on, and then we'll go back and look at some specific um, chapters or specific verses as we go through. So here's what um, Luke 14:25 says. It says that large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. So God, we thank you for this passage. Um, and we pray today that you would give us ears to hear so that we would understand what it is that you want to challenge us in this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So have you ever had a chance where you sort of made a, a kind of a commitment to an organization and its cause without finding out everything that was expected of you? You know, do you ever look for that bottom line and try to figure out, you know, what does it mean to really be on the line with this group? Have you ever got caught up in something like a book club, you know, where um, you didn't read the fine print, but you found out now that you've got to order all these other books and everything else? And it's sort of that whole idea that, um, you know, we have to be able to count the cost before we commit to something. How do we do that? Imagine that a politician stands on a soapbox and sort of addresses the crowd and says this. They say, if you're going to vote for me, you're going to vote to lose your homes and families, 
You're asking for higher taxes and lower wages. You're deciding in favor of losing all that you love best. So come on, who's on my side? Right? And that's really, you know, sort of what the crowd would, would heckle him. I mean, they wouldn't even, uh, wouldn't even think that what he was saying was actually true. And why would anybody try to advertise themselves like that? And yet, this is what Jesus is doing in this, in this passage. He says, you want to be my disciple, do you? Well, in that case, you have to learn to hate your family, give up your possessions, get ready for a nasty death. It's hardly the way to win friends and influence people. But that's not necessarily what he's about. Or for a second, imagine it this way instead. Okay, so we've got sort of the politician side of it. Now think about it this way. Um, imagine instead that you're sort of the leader of a great expedition. Um, you've been forging the way through a dangerous mountain pass, and, um, and you're bringing urgent medical aid to the villagers who are there, cut off from the rest of the world. And, and the leader sort of turns to all of you at one time and says, you know, if you want to come any further, you'll have to leave your packs behind. From here on, the path is too steep to carry all that stuff. And besides, you probably won't find them again. And, um, and if you want, you should send some postcards home right now um, because this is a dangerous route and it's very likely that several of us won't make it back. You know, we don't like the sound of that, but we can understand it, that it makes sense to us. And Jesus is really more like this second example than he is like the first. Since Christians have often quite rightly been associated with what we call you know, family values, right? It comes as a shock that we're told to hate our parents, wife, children, and siblings. But then the instruction goes one step further and says that we must actually um, hate our own self and be prepared for a shameful death. And it's important to remember that one of the things that happens, uh, and that's a truism in this day and age that Jesus is talking, is that taking up your cross wasn't simply a figure of speech. It actually meant that those who took up the cross would also be those who would die on it. So when we start to unpack that and look at it, then we start to actually see what's going on. Jesus isn't denying the actual uh, importance of close family. Um, and he's also very supportive of the harmony that's important to live together. But when there's an urgent task to be done, um, as there is now, then everything else, including one's own life, um, must be put at risk for the sake of the kingdom. So where's the crowd? The discipleship will not be easy. And there's several sort of reoccurring phrases that I think are important for us to hear. Um, it gives the section a kind of unity and underscores the dominant emphasis. He says this in verse 26, whoever comes to me and does not dot, 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 cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not dot, 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 cannot be my disciple. So therefore, none of you can become a disciple if you do not dot, 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 verse 33. So his call to us is really to consider discipleship seriously and to think seriously about what's demanded of us and how we enter into that. And the passage stands very near to the center of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. So remember that part of what he's doing is he's beginning now to prepare the disciples for what will be his departure. He reminds us that discipleship is not easy, but our accountability to God and the rigor of the tasks required um, 
It helps us to require and to walk successfully as disciples. And Jesus' attention turns to his followers. He's having them assess what discipleship will mean for them. He wants them to be aware of what's required to walk this route. And, And the point being this, that successful discipleship requires Jesus to be at the absolute center and priority of our lives. That's what it requires. So therefore, we have to count the cost of following him if we're going to finish the walk. Um, We have to put his will and the direction he leads at the center of our lives. We have to present our lives to him and reflect the values that honor God. And, And Jesus pulls no punches. He makes it very clear that everyone, um, to everyone, just how much following him will require. He must be first, and they must be ready to identify with him in his suffering. And for some, that will mean some ostracism. It'll mean um, the Jews rejecting him or perhaps some kind of isolation and persecution. Because discipleship itself is a tough road to walk. To trust him is to embrace the answer to the journey of salvation, which includes the rough patches that come along with discipleship. And so he gets right into it. You know, he lays it out. He says, here's what it's going to look like. If anyone wants to follow him, he must hate his father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, and even his or her own life. Wow, you know, just... Take a breath right there, right? I mean, that's a pretty big statement that he's laying out for us. But it's interesting because when you actually start to unpack this idea and look at what it means to be, um, you know, in the Greek, that part of what happens is there's a kind of comparative force that the word hate takes on. Um, The idea is not that we should hate our family or our lives, but in comparison to Jesus, if we're forced to choose... The winner and the choice must also always be Jesus. Jesus needs to win out, and we need to be committed to that. He's to be loved more than anyone else. And often in this first century context, to decide for Jesus did mean deciding against family. Those who loved family more than they loved Jesus would not even consider Jesus. They would just ignore him. Those who loved their own household more would not consider him because trusting him might eventually lead them to martyrdom, to that cross where they would die as well. So Jesus remarks in the context of that conversion, what it will require, that people should understand the cost. And to get to his point, he uses two really interesting um, parables or illustrations They might be titled this, um, Fools at Work and War. Fools at Work and War. Verse 28, he says this, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. This first parable, this man builds a watchtower, and it's over his land and over the city, and it's a place where he can keep watch on what's going on. But the undertaking itself is pretty expensive, and he must be sure that he can complete this project, that it's affordable. And the wise do their best to estimate the cost before they start to build, 
But how sad it is when you can't complete this, this construction because you don't have the money to finish. Probably all of us you know, can think back about building projects that got started, but because of lack of funds were never, um, were never completed. And we think about that as a kind of waste, right? But Jesus actually drives the point home by picturing people ridiculing the lack of closure on the project. In other words, they're moving towards successful discipleship, but that takes reflection. It's not an automatic exercise. It's something that we have to think about. And rather than having tragic results, um, we don't want to end up with that. Instead, we want to be able to complete what it is that God's calling us to do. There's no positive testimony on a walk with God that's abandoned because the cost has not been properly addressed. So the key really here, Jesus says, is to make sure to assess the cost. What will it cost? All our attention as well as all of our devotion. The second parable that Jesus inserts here actually pictures a king assessing his strength in preparation for war. It says this, verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one who is coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So what king goes to war without assessing the cost? Well, the answer is none of them do. We all go to war assessing the cost. Does he first sit down and consider whether his 10,000 can, can actually win against the opponent's 20,000? And If he realizes that he can't win, then he'll begin to negotiate peace, and that's important. Jesus says really here that those who want to be his disciples have to make such an assessment. And the key is to negotiate peace, but peace with God itself, with God's self. There are two options. The first one is that you can either go your own way, um, with the result being taking a stand against God, or the wiser approach um, is by suing in terms of peace with God on the Lord's gracious terms. Because you see, this is an invitation from God for us to actually be with God and to realize that God is with us and, lead, and leading us in that way. The second option means God, giving God God's full due, uh, following God faithfully. And God's desire for disciples is that they be fully aligned with him. Giving up of everything means recognizing that God has claim on all the areas of our lives. I think that's part of discipleship, actually, is learning that God desires actually not just to be part of our life, but to be over and with us in all of our life. Um, no one at the start of a journey can know all the ramifications of where the journey is going to bring them. But at the same time, starting the journey is really essential. We need to start the journey and allow God to move us in the direction that we want to go. Um, we can't enter the journey with this understanding that God actually can give us access to everything that we need. God can actually lead us and help us to be everything God's created us to be. 
I like this idea because it reminds me of sort of the Old Testament idea of shalom, which is God's kind of holistic grace that comes to us. Um, it has the idea of a relational, emotional, sort of a, a whole person kind of peace where all is right, where all is well and all will be made well. And God invites us into that, sort of a relationally, intellectually, um, that God wants all of us, our heart, our soul, our body, uh, God desires that relationship with us. At the same time, it reminds us also that not uh, no one at the start of a journey knows everything involved, but we can enter in the journey with the understanding that God has access to all that we are. Discipleship itself takes dedication and focus, and God's concerned about how his disciples walk. And everyone on the journey uh, to bring an understanding of what it requires, um, a way to resolve and stay with God on every step of the way, every step on that path. Here Jesus then begins to bring in another parable. It's a parable this time about salt. In verse 34 it says that salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out instead. So how do we become salty again? You know, have you felt lately like you're sort of a salty disciple or has the salt sort of escaped you lately? I think that comes by actually allowing God to renew us, letting God to restore us, letting God re-energize us, letting God remind us of who we're called to be and how we're supposed to act. How is it that God lets us and reminds us and grows us, restores us, re-energizes us, renews us? And then finally, in verse 35, he says this, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So what is it today? Um, what are the things that make it hard for you today to truly follow Jesus? You know, true discipleship means that Jesus needs to be given primary allegiance. And, and the reality of discipleship is that it's a long journey. It's actually a lifelong journey that we're called to. Most of us, if we're honest, know that God is constantly claiming more of our lives for himself. I mean, think about your own discipleship path. One of the things that God has been doing is God has been wooing us and bringing us and, and inviting us to go deeper with God all the time. And that's one of the things that's really before us. Like, how do we actually go deeper with God all the time? How do we realize that God is constantly claiming more of our lives? And as we continue to discover fresh areas of our lives that need attention, we can already realize that God is already leading us in addressing those areas in our life as well. You know, the fact of the matter is that we never completely arrive as disciples, but we're always on the road with God. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes, because we're hard-headed and sometimes hard-hearted, hard, um, um, we can be slow in relinquishing control to God. But Jesus gives us the resources that can make the journey possible and enables us to be who it is that God's calling us to be. 
How do we enter into that? In a real sense, you know, a disciple, when you sort of boil it down, a disciple is really a learner. That's what that Greek word means. It means that a learner, a follower. Um, and in that, the person is always under construction. God is leading us into ways of being that are always a kind of renovation of our hearts. God is renovating us, building us up. I thought of C.S. Lewis's illustration where he talked about how God was building a building, but it's much different than how we might imagine it. Because over here, God's building, you know, this wonderful, wonderful sort of palace. But the reality is because God is coming to actually live in that house with us. So think about that image, that God is renovating us because God is actually coming to live with us in the midst of it. So the gifts Jesus gives are the resources that make possible Enable us to be who God calls us to be. That's who Jesus is working in us. We don't fix our faults so that we can earn God's favor. Instead, we turn to him so that he can begin the work of renovation he wishes, he wishes in our own lives. We turn to face Jesus because he's the one who can renovate. And, and renovating actually has the idea of sort of tearing down before you can build up something that's new. So sometimes there may be places in your life where you feel like God actually has to tear some stuff down so that then you can begin to, um, to, to be something new that God's creating you to be. And the rebuilding is not always easy. Um, it's not always pleasant. But the goal is renovation. What emerges is much better than what we were when God started. The hope of this transformation is, that make, is what makes discipleship itself worth the journey. Um, remember, Jesus calls us always into relationship, not just simply into a decision, but rather calls us into a relationship where we walk with God and get to know God. So this text, I think, really calls for some kind of serious self-reflection. Here's a couple of questions for you to think about as we're sort of winding this up and thinking about how we, how we enter into this with God. Do I yield to the Lord in every area of my life? Is that one of the things that you find yourself doing? How about with possessions or family or even your own life? Do you really trust that God cares deeply for you? That you are one that God loves? You are the beloved of God? Or do you try to help him along by seizing control? Maybe sometimes avoiding some of the tension that inevitably comes from into the process um, when I try to represent Jesus to a needy world. You know, there's a tension there that oftentimes God calls us into. And they're hard questions because it can be easy to say we've given it all up when we've only given over what we are comfortable handing over to God. You know, sometimes it's easier to sort of play the game, I guess, right? than it is to actually say, okay, God, so here's my whole life. Do in me and through me what you want done. But remember that Christianity is always a commitment to a person. It's a commitment to a relationship, a commitment to this God who's willing to walk with us. 
And a disciple is a learner who, following Jesus, learns a whole new way of life. In fact, actually, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, which is one of my favorite passages, um, Paul talks about all of us being new creations, that um, we're following Jesus into a whole new way of being. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So what is the cost for you to be a disciple? What do you find often competes for first place in your devotion to Jesus? How are you tempted sometimes, maybe, to put down your cross rather than to carry it? And then in verse 34, it goes again to salt. It says that salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made pure, made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile that's thrown out. How do we encourage each other to remain salty? How do we continue to take on that salt-like flavor in our lives? What does it mean to be salty? I think that it actually just means to encourage those that we encounter with positive influence, um, to preserve the good in it, to, um, to help people as they're struggling to see ways through things, to maintain a focus on the Lord and his will for all of us. Being salty is a good thing. It's something that we're called to and by following God's word, we become salty in a really good way. Um, we become salt and light so that all can see Jesus in us. So what do we do with this passage? Well, I think one of the things we do is we offer ourselves to God in prayer. There's a kind of um, prayer that God invites us to, uh, a prayer for clarity in counting the cost, um, a prayer to be able to repent in areas of our life where things are not as complete, um, in places where we find that Jesus really isn't in charge of our whole life. To pray for a passion and joy in being disciples of the only king that's worthy of our worship, King Jesus, the one who is able to invite, the one who invites us into life. In fact, I would say that even though this is a hard passage, I hope today that you actually see it as a kind of invitation. Um, it's an invitation to put Jesus right at the center of our life and our being. And the reality is that even if we don't want to face it, um, this passage invites us to thrive and to grow as we learn to trust God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'd invite you today to think about that. Um, I'm going to pray, and as I do, I'm going to invite the band to come up um, at this time. Let's pray. So God, um, we know that you've initiated this journey of discipleship and invited us to consider the cost. Help us as we weigh all of that. We know that you have a lot of demands, but we also know that you are a God of goodness and grace. You're available to us each and every day, you're a good God, and we thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light. We also know that you, you, our Lord, always have our best at heart. 
And for that, we give you thanks and we give you praise. God, we are grateful for your love, your goodness, and your continued love and grace to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Smile.
Amen. 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 <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Well, it's been great to have you here today, and um, just really appreciate you being here, the opportunity to, um, to be together and, and to grow together. And I think, you know, this whole matter of discipleship is really um, an important thing for us to think about. God, God calls us to walk along with God, to realize that God um, is in charge, to follow God's lead, to understand God's love for us, and, and really to just be immersed in all of that. So I want to encourage you to think about that this week and, um, and be prayerful and thoughtful about how it is that God calls us to that kind of way of following Jesus. Um, but today, um, may God's grace and peace be with you. Uh, may you experience God's um, peace which surpasses all understanding. May it guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus this day and all your days. So thank you for being here. God bless you, and um, we'll see you next week. All right. King